Thank you so much, dear friends, for being here. Thank you so much for being here. Um, it's definitely been a rough uh, last week or two. Um, and um, thank you for uh, your condolences or those who are local able to join a Shiva minion or whatever you did. Um, really, it was a great outpouring of love. Uh, and if you have no clue what I'm talking about, my mother passed away a week ago. Um, and um, she struggled with cancer for nine years. Um, so on some level, it wasn't expected, but on another level, um, she went very quickly. Once we finally got her into the hospice, she went very quickly. In any case, I'm not here to talk about that, um, but I'm here to learn Torah with you all. And um, some people said, oh, why don't you take a little break from, from this? I said, no, no, I need this for me. <laughs> this, <laughs> I need this for me. So Torah is healing for me. So thank you all for being in this space with me. And um, most certainly my intention is for this learning to be in my mother's memory um, today and every day as my first teacher and ongoing teacher in life and in death. Um, and she would want me to most certainly keep going. Um, I studied Torah with her. We studied Psalms together. And um, she and she asked me in the hospital towards the end, um, you know, what's making you happy in your work? And I said, honestly, it's, it's the spaces of learning. There's so much I love, but it's the spaces of learning that drive me. So um, in that spirit, um, uh, I, I'm excited to dive in. Um, and uh, again, just grateful that this is not only a, an intellectual community here, but also um, a compassionate community of support. And um, I felt support from you know all of you over these last uh, two weeks in different ways. So thank you so much. Okay, so friends, here's a poll question for you. Um, on Baruch Spinoza. By the way, tangentially, for any of you who were in the Kindness Class series, the Kindness Class series was just published um, after it. I moved it from class version into book version, um, and that's in honor of my mother as well. And um, and that is available if you want to. You kind of review some of that. Uh, what we were in the forty classes on kindness. Um, it can also make a really good gift to a child or a grandchild for them to think about what, to me, is the heart of Judaism, the heart of all religion, the heart of all humanity is really this uh, us building a more kind world. In any case, God and nature. Option one, God is nature and no more. Option two, God is in nature, but also beyond. Option three, God is not in nature because God is supernatural. Option four, I don't know. Um, of course, I don't know can be a part of the first three also, because none of us know anything. <laughs> um, but this is what we believe and what we feel. So God is nature and no more. God is in nature, but also beyond. God is not in nature because God is supernatural. Or I don't know. Or I don't know can also include, I'm not so interested in the God idea, if that if that's where you're at also. Um, so let's cast our votes there. And Alex, whenever it seems right, you can give us our results. Wow, an overwhelming response. Nobody said God is nature and no more. No one said God is not in nature because God is supernatural. 94% um, said God is in nature, but also beyond. And 6% said, I don't know. Um, in any case, pantheism is the view that God is in na is nature, but no more. Panentheism, if you add the, the two letters E-N into pantheism and to make it panentheism, is the category that 94% voted for, that God is everything and in everything, um, but also beyond everything as we know it, supernatural beyond. 
So we're going to see why Spinoza is controversial. Of course, he's more than just the ideas we're going to explore, but we will see how this relates. So how, how separate are our minds from our bodies? We talked about that with um, uh, Descartes. How separate is God from the world? Who wrote the Bible? Does God exist at all? These are big questions. Baruch Spinoza is one of the most important Jewish philosophers of all time. Of course, it's controversial to call him a Jewish philosopher. Really, he's a philosopher who's born Jewish, is what we should probably say. But it is fair to say that his influence has been felt more strongly outside of Judaism than inside of it, most certainly. He was willing to go against the accepted beliefs of the Jewish community, which led him to an understanding of God and the Torah that differed vastly from the existing tradition and eventually caused him to be excommunicated from the Jewish world, right? Not so common to be excommunicated. Big deal. Today, if you're excommunicated, who cares? If you live in Brooklyn, you just get off one, you know, subway stop further and you're in a whole new world, right? But back then being excommunicated, you had nowhere to go. You join a, a different religion or you got nowhere because there is no secular space outside of different religious spaces. Spinoza lived in the 17th century, but his impact on philosophy extends far beyond his time and would serve as the link to the emergence of pantheism in the 19th century. In some ways, it was Spinoza's biggest idea. In pantheism, God and nature are one and the same. They're one and the same, and nothing exists beyond them. All of existence, including our thoughts, must be understood as merely part of the physical world the result of natural processes, right? This would fit in very well today with the types of scientists who want to argue there is no soul. Why is there no soul? Because you can't locate it anywhere, right? This is actually, according to many scientists, a very unscientific view because the scientific process means if you can't prove something, then you can't um, suggest it definitively. So if you can't prove the soul's not there, then you can't scientifically make a claim there is no soul, just like there is no proof of the, Im the Im immateriality of the self, the, the, the consciousness. There is really no way yet to locate consciousness within the human brain. So some want to say, well, all we know is the brain, so that's all there is. If you can't find it in the brain, we can't, you know, we have to reject it. But others will say, no, that's very unscientific, right? The fact that you um, are unable to disprove the, the, the fact that you are unable to locate consciousness and yet we know consciousness exists means you can't disqualify consciousness. And thus, it's unscientific to suggest that the soul would, does not live beyond the body. Some notion of consciousness to exist beyond the body because we know we're conscious and yet we can't locate consciousness in the brain. So we can only assume consciousness exists after the body dies. Nonetheless, Spinoza would be in the camp um, a camp that I don't want to easily dismiss um, that would suggest that all we are is our physical body. All we are is our physical brain. This was a radical departure from the relatively common belief in Spinoza's time that God was distinct from nature and that a spiritual reality existed apart from the world. Before Spinoza, God's relationship to the world was conceived in the same way as the soul's relationship to the body. The two were separate and distinct even as one serves to animate the other, right? There is God and there's world. There is body and there's soul. The immaterial is separate from the material. This made Spinoza's pantheism hard for religious people to swallow. If God is simply existence as we know it, is there really a God at all? If God is the world and the world is God, what is to distinguish this from atheism ultimately? Spinoza thought he was a religious person. Right? Many people argue he's an atheist because if God is just all we see, but nothing more, then what makes it like, how is that God? But he claimed to be a religious person. Certainly Spinoza's pantheism denies the possibility of a personal God who cares about us and to whom we can pray. According to the scholar Stephen Nadler, pantheism might sound like a religious position, but Spinoza's view doesn't contain reverence for God, just study of God as nature. To study the plants, to study the human body, to study the cosmos is to study God. Science is God. In fact, there's a gematria, um, a numerology from the Degel Machne Ephraim, 
a Hasidic thinker who says the gematria, the numerology, meaning the, the numerical value of the Hebrew letters of Ha'elokim, right, God, is the same as Teva, right? That the word for nature has the same numerical value as the word for God. And for a pantheist, oh, there it is. God is nature. But for the panentheist, they say, oh, yes, that shows that God is within all nature. Spinoza was also one of the originators of biblical criticism and believed that the Bible can be studied as written by human authors, right? Another really controversial position of the time. Of course, parts of the Bible are human written. Everyone agrees. The Psalms are written by King David, right? The Proverbs are written by um, King Solomon. Of course, other people will bring in multiple authors here or later authors. But parts of the Tanakh, part of the Hebrew scriptures, everyone agrees um, are human written, the Song of Songs. Maybe they're divinely inspired. But when it comes to the five books of Moses, right, what we call the Torah, right, the T of Tanakh um, or the, the top of Tanakh, there, traditionalists believe that either this is divinely written or um, um, and written by the, you know, uh, but, you know, written through the hand of Moses, but the word of God. Of course, Deuteronomy is different than the first four books. Deuteronomy is, are the, are the rehashing from Moshe, from Moses. So Deuteronomy has a different status from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Um, Bereshit, Shemot, Vayikra, Bamidbar has a different status from Devarim. Um, but, um, but so this was very controversial for him to suggest all of this is just human authorship. Spinoza wrote, by the way, to sum up by denominations, ultra-Orthodoxy, literally everything's divine. Liberal Orthodoxy has a little bit more of a, a nuance there around um, this being from God, but some human partnership involved. Conservative movement classically has argued divinely inspired, but most certainly is kind of conservative movement gives birth to a lot of kind of the, the biblical criticism. That's why many who went to JTS called it kind of a soulless institution, because rather than studying the Bible for meaning, it was studied historically. Um, and that was really hard for many of the rabbis that came out of there. So there's been kind of a pushback against that to kind of look for meaning in text rather than just find its historical origins. And the reform, reform movement, by and large, has kind of embraced the Ten Commandments, but basically uh, accepted, you know, the entire human authorship of uh, of Torah. Um, of course, there's nuance within those denominations. That's just kind of a, a general sense of where, where that's at. So here's what Spinoza says over here. All these details, the manner of narration, the testimony, and the context of the whole story lead to the plain conclusion that these books were written by another and not by Moses in person. So that's his conclusion over there, giving, giving birth in many ways to biblical criticism. Um, that's not to say that he doesn't find meaning there. He's very, he's a huge Bible scholar. He finds great meaning there, but he is going to challenge the traditional assumptions around authorship. Challenging the authorship of the Torah at that time was a revolutionary act in the world of Jewish thought. Because of his radical beliefs, Spinoza was famously excommunicated by his Jewish community in Amsterdam for unspecified abominable heresies is what they call it. And you can read the, the official letter if you just Google, you know, Spinoza excommunication letter, you can read the, the, the full letter. This was no small act for it was done at a time when kicking someone out of the Jewish community meant forcing them into an outside world that was hostile towards Jews. Since he didn't become a Christian, most believe, where was he to go? The very idea one could live without religion was almost completely foreign in Spinoza's time. As a younger contemporary of René Descartes, who we learned about together, Spinoza was deeply influenced by him, but also differed from him in significant ways. He rejected Descartes' idea that the mind is separate from the body and that God is separate from nature. Instead, Spinoza was a metaphysical monist. I know that's a very loaded phrase. That means he believed that one substance was the source of all existence, right? All right, let me remind you what's going on here. Descartes, dualism. What's dualism? Two. What's the two? Body, mind, world, God. Two. Spinoza is a monist. One. Everything is one. That's why this feels mystical. Even though it's about nature, not metaphysics, everything is one. Um, God, humanity, nature, everything is one. 
So, but he's a metaphysical monist. So it's one, and we're going to learn what the metaphysical part is about. He did recognize that the physical world and human thought are not identical. Each one, each one does offer a different perspective on the world, right? Um, the physical world and the realm of thought, the intellectual world. Thus making him, here's another big phrase, an attribute dualist. But he did believe that the mental and physical were both the product of a single substance. For example, according to Spinoza, a rock is in essence no different from a human being. They are both made of the same matter. And so Spinoza was still in the realm of metaphysics, but he rejected a theistic metaphysic in favor. Instead, in favor instead in a pantheistic metaphysic. Okay, so, um, you know, as a side note, you know, I was recently at the mortuary and one of the things they're selling these days, and I'm, it's not a critique that they're selling it. I mean, it's a business. I mean, you know, people in the death business also have to make money. Although I wish prices were a lot less than they are. And it's very cost, it's very prohibitive. Um, the dying industry. I mean, it's just incredible what it costs. Um, that's It's really a broader critique. I mean, people have the right to be in a business. One of the things they were selling in, in the mortuary room where I met with the woman and gave the obituary and gave my mother's final wishes was post-cremation for those who choose cremation. Of course, you can get ashes, but you can also now get, I don't know if this how recent this is, if this is decades old or brand new, um, you can now get the ashes solidified into a rock form for an extra like $2,000 where you can kind of keep the rock in your pocket. Um, those who want to kind of bring a physical part of their loved one around with them. I said to them, what is left in the ashes? By the way, I can't believe they still call these places crematoria. Post-Holocaust, they say the crematorium is calling, you know? I mean, they got us to call it a, call it a cremation company, you know, uh, agency, uh, uh, you know, call it whatever, but crematorium, I mean, post-Holocaust feels so insensitive to me. In any case, um, you can carry these rocks around with you. And I said, what of the ashes is this of the person? He said, oh, what do you mean? It's just the ashes. I said, yeah, but what are the ashes? They said, well, really, it's the calcium deposits. It's, it, uh, it's this particular part of the human that cannot be destroyed through fire. That was kind of interesting to think about, um, you know, what's kind of left. Anyways, back to Spinoza here, who's saying a human is in some sense no different than a rock. Well, certainly in death, this may be true. I mean, once a body's buried, you know, traditional Jewish law, of course, says neither speed up nor slow down the return to the earth. What does slow down mean? Embalm, em embalmment, right? Mummification. What does speed up? Cremation. There's no mitzvah of kavura bakarka, of burial for Gentiles in, in, in Jewish belief. So Judaism is not against cremation for Gentiles because um, there is no uh, mitzvah there. But um, for Jews, and again, I'm not pushing back against anyone here who has chosen um, embalmment or um, cremation for themselves um, um, because these are very personal decisions. And um, in any case, back to Spinoza, this, this sense that um, uh, even, even if there's burial, ultimately the body returns to the earth. Right, the body returns to earth, but he Spinoza wasn't just talking about in death we're no different than rocks, right? In this world, because we just become, you know, part of the earth. But he meant even in life we are um, we are one with the rock. May, that's easier for people to feel with trees. If you go to a forest and you meditate with trees, it's gonna be very powerful. You go up to the what do you call it? The, the not the redwoods, the red limes. What do you call it up there by Northern California? Somebody put it in the chat, the beautiful, really tall trees that I'm blanking at the moment of what you call that beautiful area of the country where you can meditate with these trees. You could be a tree hugger and hug these trees and really feel the oneness of life. Um, um, but the rocks might feel a little harder to get there. 
So while it's difficult to find sources, um, Sequoias, yeah, thank you. Um, while it's difficult to find sources for Spinoza's pantheism in the Jewish tradition, it's not enormously far off from the idea of God as understood by the Kabbalists and Hasidic masters. So it says in Deuteronomy chapter 34, know therefore this day and keep in mind that the Lord alone is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Ain od milvado. There is no other. And so um, here we do have this idea um, that God is on earth, right? There's not some notion of that the divinity is up in the skies in Shemayim and Olam Haba, but not here. And what does it mean to be here? Is that a presence? Is that physicality? Of course, Christians by and large believe that God can exist not only in the physical, but in the flesh of a human being. What do Jews mean and Christians mean when we say that humans are created in the image of God? Do we also mean there's a physical dimension there? Of be, is God within the human being in some sense in our light? in our physicality, in our souls, right? Or is this um, just kind of a, a metaphysical idea? On its surface, this, seem, this verse seems to mean that there's only one God and not any others. However, a closer reading reveals a deeper interpretation that the totality of existence, the heaven above and the earth below, is nothing other than God. The, this contention is similar to Spinoza's monism, the notion that everything in the world is simply a different aspect of the same divine substance. Based on this idea, the Kabbalists would come to a similar conclusion to Spinoza and conclude that even a rock is of, divine, uh, of a divine substance. Born 110 years before Spinoza, the Kabbalist Moshe Cordovero taught, realized that the Ein Sof, the infinite, exists in each existent. Do not say this is a stone, a stone and not God. Rather, all existence is God, and the stone is a thing pervaded by divinity. What separates Spinoza is that the world is God and there is nothing more. The Kabbalist perspective, however, maintains that God is within everything, but also beyond, a concept described as panentheism. To understand what this means, we can imagine that in the beginning, God was eternally vast, like an infinite sheet of paper. But God's infinite being left no space for finite creation. Therefore, God contracted God's self, Simsum, and created an empty space into which to create. We can picture the paper having a hole in it. <laughs> Great find, Alex. And into this hole, God created the world like a big bang of God's substance. And so while the infinite is in the creation, the infinite also remains outside of it. This is what makes possible to have a relationship with God as something that is not just myself or the sum total of existence. God can reveal God's self to us, what we call revelation, and we can cry out to God in prayer. In Spinoza's model, neither revelation or prayer can exist in any traditional sense, because God is the world. God is the world, and the world is God. But there is no more. So you can't reveal anything if there's no revealer. You can't pray to anyone if there's no outside being. For me, it's difficult to understand why Spinoza's monism would be appealing or sensible as a complete theory of reality for any religious person. But for a secular person, it may be very appealing to embrace Spinoza's idea here. Um, I think we need to reject much of Spinoza's thought as Jews, as he undermines almost the entirety of Judaism. First, his, his theology essentially eliminates the creation story as we traditionally understand it. If God is in the world, then there can't be a cause to creation that is external to it. Second, revelation is a key element of the Jewish religion. Yet for Spinoza, there is no being outside of nature that can communicate with us. Without revelation, the Torah is no longer divine at all. Third, prayer and divine intervention are completely irrelevant if there is no transcendent God. 
Why should one pray if there is no one to listen? Accepting the ideas of Spinoza would require changing Judaism into a dramatically different religion. Again, um, all respect to people who want to embrace him. I think he can be a very meaningful system of thought to embrace. Um, and I think it's all smart and reasonable. Just want to make clear that it really is a radical departure from traditional Judaism, which doesn't make it not fair game to entertain in our session. Our goal here is not to promote a version of Judaism, but to engage in thought together. So what can, what can we like about Spinoza, even if there's some things we might differ from? One possibility is his courage and willingness to go against the accepted wisdom of the community. We can admire his fidelity to philosophy and the world of ideas, even if it meant being outside both the Christian and Jewish worlds, right? Hopefully all of us has the courage to ask big questions. Hopefully we have the courage to be kicked out of community based upon our convictions, based upon our principles. For us to be kicked out would have a much smaller consequence than it did for him, but we can be all the more inspired by being willing to speak truth to power, being willing to stand up for our beliefs in spaces where they're not popular. We can also see Spinoza's pantheism as helping move one towards a more mystical view of God. Rather than view God as cold, abstract, and distant, as is common for rationalism sometimes, Spinoza helps us realize that God is everywhere and found in everything, right? It's not that God created the flower. God is the flower. It's not that I thank God for my capacity to laugh and our ability to cry together. God is in the laughter and in the crying. God is within the emotional experience. right? God is with a person in their suffering and in their joy, but not just with them as a presence, literally within it. Understanding this can perhaps inspire us to move towards a mystical spirituality that can enable, enable a closer and more intimate relationship with the divine. Spinoza's pantheism may also be helpful for creating a sense of global community by reminding us that we are all one. Maybe there is even some truth to monism, and by recognizing this, we can extend it to the ethical realm by seeing value in all people, animals, and the natural world. To be sure, Spinoza's work was radical and revolutionary, but it was bold, smart, and perhaps not irredeemable. So friends, that's where I'm going to pause with us. Um, and um, I look forward to um, hearing from you. And to, uh, as always, you're welcome to engage with Spinoza um, or with my views of Spinoza. Um, and you're always welcome to depart to something else that you're thinking about that kind of emerged because tangents are also wonderful. So, uh, and excuse my scruffiness. <laughs> I, I, I'm not a fan of it, but I'm doing that for a little bit right now. But that's a different conversation. So, okay. So who would, um, okay. Aglaia, I see your hand up first. Okay. Don't get mad at me. All right. Okay. But I'm about to like be really, really weird. All right. So I have these kinds of discussions about, well, are you really different from a rock? Are you really different from a cell phone? As you know, with my students, every single semester, the world serves students and they look at me like I'm like absolutely out of my mind. But that's okay. I'm cool with that. However, though, um, one of the things that I do think about, though, with Spinoza is, all right, well, okay, this is going to sound really weird, though, but, okay, all humans, okay, basically, though, would we even exist without God? And so if humans cannot exist without God, and everything that we do, basically, well, everything that we do, can it actually be separated from God at all? So do I have a problem with the idea of thinking as, you know, like, well, you know, the Torah is written, you know, like, I think documentary, you know, hypothesis. And then I think, well, there are humans writing this though, but since God created the humans who like wrote all this down, can it actually exist without God at all? So that's where I'm kind of like looking at this. All right, is, I don't know, like um, if there's a good way to put this though, but Spinoza's not that far off. I mean, I do think that he's a little bit kind of being kind of a jerk when he says nothing. Well, I shouldn't say that, but like there is no God beyond this. I mean, I think he's being a little bit too much though, but at the same time though, if you look at, you know, traditions like Hinduism or, you know, where, well, you know, technically everything is all, 
part of God's mind anyway. Even these like, you know, minor deities that you have, you know, like these, you know, avatars of, you know, Krishna and everything like that. Even they are just reflections of, you know, like whatever God is. And then you think Taoism, well, you have to actually like flow along with life anyway, though, because, well, you know, everything is still part of God anyway. So I don't know, like, I mean, maybe Spinoza is just seeing the same thing in a completely different way, but he is still seeing the same thing because, well, yeah, I mean, seriously, though, like even everything that's beyond nature is still part of God, just the same as all of us. I don't Mm -hmm. know if I'm expressing it well, but yeah, like everything, yeah. Awesome. So um, great. A lot here. And I also see Ethan's uh, point on the side I'm going to respond to as well. Um, so just to pick up on one of your many great points, Aglaia, on the idea of, well, if humans wrote Torah um, and God created humans, in some way it can be divine in kind of an interesting, different way. That's an interesting idea that I've never um, really heard articulated. But here's a similar idea, which I think is also interesting. At the advent of the psychological revolution, you know, the think Freud, many said, well, we're not created in the image of God. We created God in our image. And I think they're right. I think they're largely right. Um, Because there's really hardly an alternative for most people to do anything other than construct something out of what we have to work with. And so we construct some idea of a God based on what we are and what we know. Um, whether we construct that God to look like our mother or father or look like ourselves in some way or think like ourselves. Um, (laughs) One of my kids asked me recently, I think it was my four-year-old, he said, is God Jewish? (laughs) He said, of course not. Of course not. You know, God is not a religion. Um, You know, that's, that's, that's for us to, you know, to have. Um, and so I can almost imagine it's like a God with payas and a black hat. You know what I mean? It's like a God wearing a talus, you know. Oh, so um, so in any case, yes, it, it, of course we construct God in our image. But the Hasidic thinkers say, they flip it then. They say, yes, we construct God in our image. But we construct God in our image from our image of God. And thus it's from a divine place within us that we construct the divine, thus making it true. And so that's kind of an interesting approach also to what Aglaia is saying here. Yes, humans might write ideas, but those ideas come from kind of a potentially from a divine origin, thus giving them divinity as well. And what is that kind of meeting space of the human and the divine? Are they overlapping? Are they separate? Think of the art. Think of the famous artwork in the, in the Vatican, you know, of the fingers touching, you know, or trying to come close. Is it, is it pinky? Is it four fingers? Forget now. Four fingers, right? Um, in any case, yeah. So, so um, that's a really cool. Four point. fingers. And what's yeah, that? I can see it on my wall. It's like four fingers. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> you know, or it's like I mean, there's so many images we can have of touching the divine, but it feels to me like one of them is if you've ever been in the room when a baby's born. Um, all the more so if it's if it's one of your own or one you love, and you experience that moment and you touch that child for the first time feels like, wow, this is a human touching a human, but there's something else going on here in this space. Or if you're holding the hand of someone uh, dying. But on this topic of nature, um, you know, people said to me recently, uh, or we've all heard it, death is natural, death is natural. And I was thinking about that phrase recently, and, and this is a little controversial, because and I'm sorry if this rubs against people the wrong way, but um, what makes nature good? We assume that when we say something is natural, that that makes it good right? It, uh, it makes it pure and innocent and, and virtuous in some sense. It's natural. But just because something natural, right? Um, you know, um, does that make it? Does that make it good? And so I want to protest death. Um, I want to accept death too. I want to accept it. Um, accept death as, as, as natural and inevitable and, and surrender. But I also want to protest it, right? If you've lived a full life and you're dying a, nat- a natural death, Right. There's a surrender. There's an acceptance. I, 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 I was at the bedside encouraging my mother to accept it, to let go, um, because that's the gift we give people who have to go, I think. But I'm also there to protest when children are killed, when there's gun violence, when there's war, protest death that is unneeded. Um, and so there's natural death and there's unnatural death. And 
Um, but this question of, of nature, and that leads into Ethan's point now of Spinoza and nature and, and, God, and, and evil. If God is nature, then we're going to have to decide is nature good or, or not. The conclusions are, 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 are pro, I mean, a, a whole lot more than these three. But the three most basic conclusions is either nature is good, right? People who love to hike and feel God in nature might come to such a conclusion that the natural is the, is the holy, um, you know, might feel that, you know, people who are interested in homeopathic care and other, other things like this might feel like, like, like the nature, nature is the highest level. Other people might conclude nature is evil. Nature is what has natural disasters. Nature is what, what produces cancer. Nature is um, what um, leads to children being born with, um, you know, only able to live a, a year in painful existence. And some people might conclude a middle ground that nature is neither good nor evil. It's like a technology that can be used for good and evil or that nature has both components within it. In any case, whatever that conclusion is, if God is nature, then that's what God is. Is God benevolent or, or, or um, is God evil or is God um, neither? Is God beyond the categories of, of human good and evil? Um, these are profound questions and Spinoza struggled a lot with them. And to be honest, I'm, I'm really having studied Spinoza a lot. I just don't know enough Spinoza to authoritatively say um, how he worked that issue out. I don't know um, how he worked it out. Um, uh, and I've read a bunch of things on that. And I think he's really complicated on that issue on how he views um, good and evil. So yes, let me pause there. To welcome in, yes, Cheryl and then uh, Gary, uh, Gary Friedlander. When it's, doesn't it say from, you know, from ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Yes. So, I mean, it's already kind of been whoever you believe wrote that, either God or man or a combination of both. I mean, you're, you're just saying, basically, you're saying that, I mean, I'm, I'm saying that, that this is natural. This is, this is natural, the wrong word. This is the, um, this is the way, this is the way it's what we start and we live and we end. Yes. And you're just saying that you don't, you're not saying that that's a good thing, you know, that, but then there's the whole thing about, well, the soul lives on forever. So you could say that, that it's just part of the body that is gone, but your soul lives on forever. Yeah. Thank you, Cheryl. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I don't want to offer a perspective or a conclusion on this as much as kind of problematize the assumption that the natural is good. Um, and um, it does feel to me that many natural things are good and worth us submitting to and worth us embracing. Uh, so many, so many natural things that we identify and other things that um, are problematic when for, and, and, and just not black and white. When should one stop their chemotherapy? Well, that's a really personal decision around how much one is suffering and when they're ready to give in and when they want to protest, you know, and one might say, hey, it's just natural for me to give in now. Um, and another might say, like, I'm going to fight to the end. And there's no right or wrong answer there necessarily. And um and uh, yeah, and one might say, you know, should one take heavy um, opioids towards the end? I assume most of us think yes. Um, I, I, I chose to max out my mother's morphine more than she would have wanted because she probably want, would have wanted to be more present, but I just wanted her to have as little pain as possible. Um, and I, that's not natural. A natural death would be to experience the full pain of it all. Um, it's, it's, you know, to use opioids would be less natural, but I choose less natural, um, as good because I don't think pain is good. Some people okay. think pain is natural and, and good. What's that, Cheryl? Okay. I was just going to say, say yeah. in addition to the human, the human, um, aspect of this that I brought up, I also thought. Well, you because you mentioned you know nature not being great like when you talk about natural disasters but so many of the natural disasters have been i mean you can believe this or not 
I'm assuming you probably do, have been man-made, you know, caused, man-caused, people-caused. I'm not just blaming the, the guys. Right. So people-caused. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, like, like you were providing for the palliative comfort of your mother, um, on the other side, uh, humans have done a, B, and C, and X, Y, and Z, and this is a result, you know, these, whatever's happening now in, the, in our climate is happening because of, in a large part, because of that. So. Yes, yes. thank you. I, I am, um, um, I am a big believer, exactly in what you just said, that, that global hunger is not a natural problem. It's a, it's a human-made problem we have enough feed food to feed all of humanity and we don't allocate it as such that climate change a big chunk of it is hitting more vulnerable populations and caused by more rich populations and that is human created at least partially that even mental health challenges a lot of the society we've enabled ourselves to produce um, leading to increased mental health challenges is not just natural chemical firings of the brain they're actually societally influenced. So yes, I'm a big believer in that. Now, if I've never given you one of these coins and you want one or many, come to my office or give me your address and I'll send it to you. Just a reminder on Cheryl, we've all probably heard this idea, but just to remind us, and I had these coins made, on the one side of the coin, it says, Bishvili Nivraha Ulam, the world was created for me. And on the other side of the coin, it says, Anochi Afar Ve'efer, I am, I am dust and ashes. Um, and the wisdom is to know which side to look at each day. When do I need to remind myself that I, I have infinite value? And when do I need to remind myself that I'm just dust and ashes? And um, yeah, and so on that point, um, that, um, th thank you, Cheryl. Anyways, thank you, Cheryl. Um, by the way, one more thing before we go over to uh, Gary Freelander than Toby, is that I just wanna thank people for being here today because we have a few more people than usual. And the only conclusion I can come to is not that people were just fascinated by Spinoza, <laughs> but that a few more people showed up for me today. Um, and so, you know, uh, some of you might've come, whatever was going on in my life. And some, a few of you may have come um, because uh, you were just being kind. So or maybe you all came to be kind. So I think you all came to be kind, but anyways, thank you. So, oh yeah, Gary Friedlander, hi. Good morning, everyone. Shmuley, it's nice to see you. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yes, great. Yeah, okay. Uh, I just wanted to, well, I had a couple of things, but just quickly about nature. I don't think nature is good or nature is bad. It just is. And uh, and in my feelings or my philosophy is nature, God put us in a natural motion and uh, we fiddle with it as human beings and we, we see the consequences, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Uh, you know, and it depends on what side of the fence you're on. You know, if we see a, a movie in Africa and a, a lion attacks a zebra, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago. We go, oh, that's horrible, but that's how they live. That's that's natural. And death on our side is is natural. Uh, uh, and so I, I can't say it's good or bad. It, it just is. And we don't always uh, can understand what happens in nature. It just does. You know, we, we, we're still reaching to figure all that out. And as soon as we think we figure it all out, uh, it blows our philosophy or our thought process. But <laughs> the, 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 the two other quick things was, you know, listening to you and, and, and have read some Spinoza, but nowhere like you have. It reminds me of a book by Milton Steinberg uh, as a driven leaf uh, about uh, Alicia Benabayu. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. And uh, and in his struggle uh, with Judaism and 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 I think it's uh, the Greeks at that time, but he gets excommunicated as well because he has these these thoughts that are antithetical to to Judaism. Uh, but it's a novel. But he I don't know if anyone's ever read it or if you've read it, but it's it's a good read. Uh, it makes it makes you think kind of what we we discussed here. And uh, the third thing that I really wanted to say, you talked about prayer. Uh, you know, at least in my philosophy, the way I have kind of helpfully figured things out, that, that God is part of nature as well as in every, everything else. And he has no ability to, or she has no ability to, to uh, intervene because that, and then we go back to nature. 
Uh, so, you know, I pray to God and, and I feel that God may listen, but, you know, he can't, he can't answer me directly. Uh, but he answers me by, by, by the textual ways in which man has, may have been divinely inspired to help answer those questions and lead me in, in, a, in a better purpose of life, not just personally, but uh, uh, for the world. So, Beautiful, my- Gary. Thank you so much. Just a brief reply before we go over to Toby there. Yeah, first on that point of intervention, I mean, we could spend a whole year just studying the various theological be- beliefs around divine intervention, um, maximalist approach, mi- minimalist approach, and everything in between. And this notion of God's willingness or or ability to respond to anything at all. Um, so thank you for that. And um, Alicia Benavuya, um, as you mentioned, is is generally assumed to be the first kind of Jewish public atheist, you know, as he emerges in the Talmud. Um, and yet, even though there's a challenge to him, there's also a level of respect to him, certainly from Rebbe Meir, um, at, who still views him as his teacher, and 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 they respect each other in that. And so that's a that that's a that's a great part of our tradition as well. But to your first point, yeah, I mean, on nature, just think about water and fire. Like water is needed for human survival. You can only live a few days without it. And yet how many people die from flood? You know, fire, like fire is needed for all society building. And yet fire is is, is part of the tools of destruction. And so that leads to this great philosophical debate today of how much can we and should we manipulate nature? This is one of the great, great questions of our day. Um, manipulating uh, DNA, um, you know, um, ma- uh, manipulating uh, food, manipulating um, really virtually everything of what we've inherited, um, you know, as it leads to GMOs and and the like. And I, I I I suspect most of us have some degree of contradictory views on this. That some degree of nature we think we can manipulate. You know, and some aspects we say, don't play God, right? Some of us will reject that argument of don't play God on some areas and maybe embrace it in others, that there's, that there's humans should be empowered towards scientific innovation and medical advancements, and yet also believe there's some limits there. So, um, okay, over to you, Toby. Thank you, Gary. Well, Rabbi, you have, as you always do, uh, sort of presage what I was going to say. I'm a big fan of science. And I don't think God and science are, are mutually exclusive at all. Um, I think God, whoever that might be, or whatever concept you have of God, provided man, humans, with a brain to figure stuff out and gave us the gift of physics, uh, which we are have uncovered, you know, and are still in the process of uncovering. I've been reading a lot about Kabbalistic thought and that creation is continuing and that it didn't stop with Genesis, you know, that it's a process. Mm-hmm. And, and we as humans, as feeble as we are, are constantly uncovering these things, which by their own definition are neither good nor evil. They are things like physics is a thing, you know, like nature is a thing. And it's up to us in our infinite wisdom and consultation with whatever God figure we happen to believe in to, to figure out what God's intention for these things are, mm-hmm. you know, like how did, how did God want us to use DNA and what's too far, you know, what, you know, it's, it's, I, I love science. And I think as we develop um, a sense of ethics uh, and again, capitalistic thought, being what it is, is that we are ever and ever increasing our, our ethical attitudes, or supposedly anyway, that we will come to, a, to some sort of, of ideal of how much of what is ethical. How are, how are we to handle these things ethically? Anyway, Beautiful. Thank you, Toby. And that's a great segue into something that is going to emerge for us later as well, that one of the important realms of ethics in philosophy is distinguishing the is from the ought. The is from the ought. Now, some want to say that we should just live with the is, right? There is, there basically are no ethics, just do like live with the reality as it is, just embracing everything, not trying to change anything really. Um, 
you know, but the birth of ethics uh, essentially is that ought is a separate realm from is. I think that that relates to science and ethics. Science is what is, um, and the ought is what we do with what is. So too, as it relates to law, law is separate from ethics. Uh, of course, they can be overlapping, but some people think to be a good person in America means to follow the law. Like I don't cheat my taxes. I don't drive more than nine miles an hour faster than the limit. <laughs> I, you know, I, um, I basically, you know, um, do what the law says and that makes me decent, but, but the law can be the opposite of what's ethical. And, and of course the ethical can be far beyond what the law tells us to do. And so, um, and yet we've been taught so much to just, you know, um, embrace what is, and we're hardwired to embrace what is. And so that's one of our great challenges. And yet I think that religion should not be in tension with science. They're just different realms. The si science has its, has its lane and religion has its lane. And, um, the, you know, the, the, the idea is that scientific findings are going to challenge our notion of religion doesn't, doesn't really make sense to me. So all right, let's take one more who hasn't spoken yet, and then we'll uh, we'll, we'll pause there for the day. If there's anyone else who wants to jump in on anything. Oh, yes. Hi, Vicki. I just was going to say it's an interesting discussion. Um, and I think that from what you just said, for me, the whole idea of the lane of religion, you said this notion of uncertainty, this notion of doubt, this notion of uh, mystery yes. uh, and things we can't explain, especially when you are dealing with something that's difficult to accept in this life. But it is. And the fact that we're not not in control, um, the two sides of the coin, okay, um, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? Um, there's something very humbling about that, and I think that's also part of religious belief. Beautiful, I love that, Vicky. And you know, to quote something building off what Vicky said that we we shared earlier, if you think life is just a puzzle with a missing piece, you're just looking for the puzzle piece. But if you think life is a wonder and mystery that can't a problem that can't be solved. It's a very different orientation to, 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 to um, live in the world as such. And so um, thank you for that. And um, I give everyone here the blessing and hopefully you'll give it back to me that we can continue to live with that wonder and awe and mystery. Um, you know, sometimes with paradox of, con of contradictory truth and sometimes um, outside the realm of what's true, just being with what, um, with what we encounter. And sometimes judging it as good and evil because we have to stand up for good and fight evil. And sometimes not labeling it or judging it as good and evil because all of that is within us and all of that is around us. And sometimes we just exist with the messiness of all of it, whether it's from God or from humans or wherever it's from. Um, sometimes just submitting all around us that we can't even understand. Have a wonderful day, everyone. So great to be with you all. Thank you so much for joining.